How's working from home been going for you? Remarkably Remote from GoToMeeting will help you succeed in today's new normal. In just three minutes or less, we'll share simple but helpful tips to keep you on track. From managing your motivation, workload, and relationships to hosting and attending virtual events that keep you connected with your clients and colleagues. So check out Remarkably Remote on your favorite podcasting platform or head to gotomeeting.com slash tips. Welcome to Rates and Barrels, episode number 95. It is May 14th. Derek Van Riper here with Eno Saris. On this episode, we have a follow-up to a question that became an article. It's kind of like the the tweet that became a movie. Um, Eno wrote a piece about aces and how they're defined. He talked to a bunch of people around baseball to get them to weigh in on that. So we'll talk about how that piece turned out and some of the responses that he received while putting that together. Uh, we're going to talk about the retro drafts that have continued. Ron Chandler put those together a few weeks ago. We've done 1982 and 1990. Last night, I was in one that was for 1999. So I'll talk about some of the things that I've learned going through different seasons and preparing for those drafts. We've got a really good question about Lucas Giolito, but I think it's kind of a, a broader question inside that as well before we get to our beer of the week segment. You know, happy Thursday. How's it going for you today? It's good. It's good. I'm uh, I'm ready to go do something. I'm getting a little stir crazy. It's uh, it's getting to me a little bit. I I really wish. You know what I wish? I wish that they would open up hiking trails. I just really feel like there are so many, and, and maybe it's different when there's just a few hiking trails and everyone goes to the same ones. But there are so many hiking trails. I, I live right up against the foothills here in Northern California. And there are so many hiking trails that I just can't imagine that we'd all go to the same ones. And if you see somebody on the trail, it's fairly easy to just be like, okay, I'm going to go stand a little bit off trail here and let you get by, right? Um, and it would just give me so much mental space, so much happiness <laughs> to go take the kids on a walk in nature and there's like three or four different places i could go you know even if one was crowded or, or was closed but i just don't want to go somewhere that's been closed and i could say oh i'll just go under the 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 tape or whatever i don't think that i'm endangering anybody by doing this the problem is that they could give me like a 600 dollars parking ticket I mean, just between it being closed and me not being able to park in the parking lot, they like they could write whatever one number they want down on that thing, and I'd probably just have to pay it. So that's uh, a major deterrent for me, uh, but I'm also sort of mad about it. Um, I don't think that it uh, it's keeping anybody safer, and it, it is harming my happiness. Um, so I understand it as a portion of a larger strategy but at this point um my area is uh well off compared to most of america i know that stanford hospital here has uh single digit covid cases um and plenty of beds open um so uh i would like to go hiking sorry to get chippy 
Yeah. Chippy's been a chippy. theme for you for the last uh, few episodes. Yeah, I'm starting to get chippy. <laughs> Understandable. I mean, there's there's a, a pretty wide range of, of possibilities between do nothing and release the hounds, right? Like, <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> I did see your neck of the woods will open up, and people were in bars. And well, yeah, that. I mean. I would like to go to a bar, but that's not first on my list because I'm like, well, that's pretty, that's pretty close. Yeah. Quarters. So what happened? And I'm just recounting uh, what happened. I'm not taking a side in this case. Um, <laughs> so yeah, the Wisconsin Supreme Court overturned the governor's stay-at-home order, and they deemed it unconstitutional. And within uh-huh. 20 minutes, there was messaging from the Tavern League of Wisconsin that it was okay to open your businesses, your bars again, <laughs> which I'm very sympathetic to people who own businesses, who work in those businesses. I, I get it. I understand. You, you need That's your livelihood. You need to make money. Um, but it was strange to see a packed bar. This, I think the picture I saw was from a college bar in Platteville, which is west of Madison, southwest corner of the state. From Chris Drosner's uh, feed? Yeah, it was a bar. I think it was called like Nick's or something. I, I, it doesn't, it, Not it's irrelevant. Not a single mask. No, no Nothing, right? <laughs> right. Like none of that. And it's like, okay, now they're... That's released the hounds. That's, that's released the hounds. <laughs> like for, for lack of a better description, that's what it is. And, and I'm not saying, again, I'm not saying everyone needs to just do nothing because we will lose our minds doing nothing. But in the event that you are out in public and you're beginning to increase your activity... You can still use common sense, and you can use precautions, and you can do these things with the idea of doing them safely. And I think that was the the troubling part of that. But I think they've, you and I have touched on this. I mean, this has become a, a politicized issue, even though it really shouldn't be. Like this is yeah. a, this is just a matter of keeping everybody healthy. And I understand that the major political parties in America disagree on how and and when that should be done that's and and i have sympathy for the disagreement because you know having looked at the numbers and having dived into the research as much as i i've had the time to uh, my most overwhelming feeling is a surprise at how little we know for sure and um how dirty the metrics are and i've talked about how cases is a dirty metric and so people are kind of slam dunking on arizona for opening up um based on their situation because cases is going up. However, cases are going up because they're testing more. And so there's that relationship that makes cases a not a great metric. If you look at a crass metric that sounds terrible to talk about, but if you look at daily new daily deaths in Arizona, it's it's down and it's been going down for a week plus. So you know, I think and if you look at hospital capacity, another sort of crass way to look at it, but a slightly better snapshot of how a, an area is doing, because we've already we've always known that more people had it than the case number suggested. You know, most of the antibody tests have, have shown us that. And just thinking about it, if we know that there's asymptomatic people and that there's young people that don't need to go to the hospital, we know that there's people out there who had it that never tested positive. So we know the case number is bad. So, you know, as we case, as we test more, we get more cases, and that makes certain places look worse than they are. So just the fact that we can't um, come to an agreement on a common sense of metrics, you know, 
we can't it, it kind of parallels the political conversation where we can't come to terms with a common sense a common set of information we like you know one side says you can't quote that organization another side says you can't quote that one and and then often we can't even uh, agree on a set of, a, a common set of language of ways to talk around things we call one thing um, you know we have different words for for the same thing that uh, are loaded words and uh, get us all ready for a fight you know um, and uh, so just the fact that we can't set on a on on a bunch of metrics and be like okay these are the metrics that we uh that we agree on is disappointing for me um and maybe you know maybe it's a failure of leadership uh but also there's a certain amount of we won't know exactly what was right to do we don't know exactly what metrics are great we won't maybe keep uh, track of the right metrics until the dust is cleared on this situation and we know more because a lot of what we're doing now is based on stuff that happened in 1918. And if if our metrics now are bad, I mean, I'm just going to assume that the metrics are worse in 1918. That seems like a reasonable assumption. So, again, do nothing versus release the hounds. It's not one versus the other, really, even though people might be looking at it that way. It's you know, gradually trying to get back to doing the things that we enjoy. And, of course, we say this as the uh, week has dragged on, we thought maybe we were getting a proposal, a formal proposal from the owners to the players on Tuesday. They talked about safety instead. And at the time of this recording, late Thursday morning, I don't think a formal proposal has been sent to the players yet. There's a, so there was some reporting from Jared Diamond today that there was a 100-page document um, that was sent to the players about health and safety. And there was some reporting from Ken Rosenthal that uh, there was a presentation made to a select group of players, including Daniel Murphy, um, about uh, health and safety. So there, there's some movement on the issue. Yeah, but it, it seems like that's the focus ahead of the the economics, though. Whereas at the beginning of the week, we thought it was going to be, you know, the fight over how I revenue is going to be distributed. I think it was a really silly idea, uh, a really silly move by the by ownership to lead with finances. Um, I think you get you engender a lot of. It, it, have you ever? It, there's this game theory aspect, um, and I wish I could uh, point to a specific article, but I'm, I read a little bit about this for a while, um, some years back. That um, you know, if, if you define like two basic strategies in negotiation, one as the kind of hard line approach, um, I'm going to ask for the moon uh, so that I get uh, North America. You know what I mean? <laughs> Um, that's the sort of like, uh, hard line, um, out for myself, go as far as I can, uh, push it as far as I can in my direction. That's one sort of theory of, of negotiation. And another theory of negotiation is I'm going to identify my opponent's needs and my surplus and sort of find uh, a place in the middle that uh, works for us both. Um, and I saw, I read some analysis that the the one where you identify a middle ground um, is a, a better strategy in terms of results. Well, I think there's and, a chance of like getting more deals done in the future too. Like if, if, if future oh, relationships are a factor, that's huge. And just think about this in terms of making fantasy trades. It's a hundred percent right. I know there are people out there who are like, well, you know, I've had a lot of success and and, and really trounced some of my teammates by. You know, you know, doing these outlandish deals. 
I, I'll tell you, man, I've been on the other end of these and there are people that I like, uh, you know, in real life um, who I basically don't even read their trade offers anymore. Yeah, I, I've had filters for that. If I read it, I read it completely differently maybe than they intend, which is, oh, he has interest in this one player. I I don't care what players he put in the deal at all. I just know he wants this one player of mine. And then I can maybe go to their team, their player page and start from scratch on my own because what he gave me started, gave me nothing. Basically, he gave me three, uh, you know, top 200 prospects for my uh, 26-year-old major leaguer, you know, where, you know, you're like, come on, dude. You know, so you just ignore the offer and all you get from it is he's interested in this player. So uh, that's that. That's where I've. That's how I've sort of filtered some people's offers because they're just so terrible. Um, and and maybe some people look at my offers uh, as, as the same. But I will say that I try always to look at the standings, uh, look at their needs, look at their team, try to put myself in their shoes, think about what uh, what they're thinking about, think about what they're worried about, think about where they'd like to go, where they are in the wind cycle, think about what I have extra of and see if there's any way that we can make a deal that makes sense for both of us. That's how I approach deal making. And if I had been the owners, I would have said, you know what? Everyone's scared right now. Everyone's thinking about their health. Everyone's thinking about how to, how to interact with each other in the future and masks and this and that. Why would I lead with money? I think that's maybe where the heart of many, if not all, owners are. I can't speak for for all of them, but that's kind of how they got into their positions, right? I mean, to are they on? Are they on like? Are they on plantations in New Zealand? You know, and just <laughs> you know, they're like they're just totally oblivious. Or, they have no idea. They'd be in a rocking chair on the porch in that scenario. They wouldn't be like working. No, I mean like I'm just being like gone. there's a bunch of people who 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 fled to New Zealand. I, that might be a Silicon Valley thing, but um, uh, what I'm just saying is like they they, they just totally oblivious to to the fear that that everyone's got. If 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 they feel it at all, then they should say, "Oh man, dude, do you know what they're thinking about right now? They're thinking about how do we even play this game?" Yeah, and it, it's going to take a pretty unusual solution. I was talking to my wife about. You just my fears about the baseball season and the obvious connection to my employment. And uh, we were also thinking about football season a little bit too. Less directly, you know, something that employs me, but definitely a factor since I have fantasy responsibilities for football. And we were thinking about football with, with one game a week. If you really wanted to play it safe in football and say, you know what, we're going to stretch out our schedule. We're going to have 14-day periods after each game where we're not playing. We're going to stagger our schedule. So there are games being played every Sunday. But half the teams are going to play on on these Sundays, and the other half are going to play on the other Sundays, and you're going to mix and match. Mm. You could build in some isolation periods and then have a few days leading up to a game and do Sunday-Thursday alternating with another group that's doing Sunday-Thursday. And you only have a few games on each of those days, but the attention on every game, like, th- again, thinking about this from the greedy perspective, you'd have more attention on every individual game this way. So the reason why... You this might I, have to shorten the season or, or shorten the preseason, which sucks. Oh, yeah. Throw those games away anyway, which the players don't want. It's fine. Start the season yeah, in they've August. Been advocating for shorter preseasons themselves. And stretch it into March. I mean, you're not worried about 
the college season and the draft as much this year anyway. Like you're, you're doing something extraordinary in order to keep people safe, which is the thing the players and most people would want. And you're satisfying the owners by creating an environment that also generates them more money, which with their schedule is more possible. Baseball's solution is much more complex because of just the, the compact nature of how we normally get through a season. And if you try to stretch out baseball, if you said, we're going to play double headers on back-to-back days and then take 14 days off, well, that's four games in, in 15 or 16 days. It's not enough, right? That is a very short season, even if you stretch it out over a long period of time. But then you start asking questions like, is it better to do that than to do nothing? Maybe. Do people feel safe in that scenario? I don't know. Do large sectors of the economy get going again and, and maybe pull some people out of poverty and out of, uh, out of uh, uh, you know, terrible situations financially? Like, maybe? Yeah, I just, I just think the solutions to these major problems that we're looking at beyond sport do require a, hey, you know, maybe I should think about what it's like to be the other person. And that went out the window for a lot of people a long time ago, for a lot of very powerful people who make a lot of decisions about how our lives are run. Just see it as a war all the time. It is, like, and and it, it it probably even it's it is legitimately bad when you read stories about it and see how processes are going down state by state and at the federal level, of course, too. I think we also get a feeling from Twitter that we're even more divided than we actually are. And I'm bringing this up because we had Joey Mellows, we had Baseball Brit on the Athletic Fantasy Baseball podcast last Friday. Joey's awesome to talk to, by the way. And mm-hmm, he was talking yeah. about how he learned a lot about America last year. Because for those people who are listening who aren't familiar with him yet, Joey went all around to every major league stadium and several minor league and independent ball stadiums last year. Took the ultimate road trip over the course of a year just to absorb as much baseball as he could. And he saw every corner of America. He stayed with people on both sides of the aisle politically. He stayed with people from many different walks of life. And, you know, we're talking baseball and just about his trip. And I said, Joey, like, you, you were in every corner of America last year. Are we as divided as we seem to be on Twitter? And at least his experience was that, no, like, the, as a group, we are a, a kind and I think warm was the term. You just got we're a, a, like a very welcoming and warm group of people, which, again, if you're talking about someone who's, you know, hosting you and putting you up, they obviously have some some generosity just kind of built into the core, right? But I just thought it was interesting because how many people have been all over this country that way at any point in the recent past? And 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 did it the way he did because like a, a beat writer has but doesn't necessarily go and talk to fans whereas he was walking around, you know, talking to anybody who would talk to him basically. So um yeah, there's a there's there's going around the country and there's you know going around the country and meeting people, you know. Right. Like actually just experiencing America from a lot of different perspectives. So, I, I just thought that was a really interesting conversation and it maybe I don't know, it, it gave me a little bit of hope that it, it's not as bad as it seems even if it is in fact pretty bad. Yeah. Well, I mean, just think about like the way YouTube promotes videos or the way Twitter works, a hot take uh, even if someone's making fun of it or uh, disagreeing with it, gets augmented and gets blown up and gets seen by more people. So, yeah, yeah, I've um, 
even with this, uh, even with the, the the financial aspect, I didn't write about it. I didn't really feel the need to tweet about it because I, first of all, I just thought it wasn't going to fly. Um, the revenue sharing thing. The problem is, it sounds way too much like uh, salary cap um, that was in. It's built in other leagues, and, and they're hundred percent against the salary cap. But I'm just mostly disappointed that they didn't lead with the the health aspect. If they had led with this hundred page document and the health thing, then they would have uh, you know created a lot of goodwill among the players, being like, hey, they they care about us, you know? right? And ahead of a CBA negotiation, which was already going to be, I think, a very strained negotiation, to put it mildly, it's an olive branch. It's a way of trying to just make the relationship better. Like I, I just, yeah. I would have liked to have seen that too. And a lot of people have pointed this out. It's like if you're going to lead with trying to get the players to absorb uh, some of the potential losses this year, you really can't do that in good faith without at least showing them the books, right? Like publicly, are we ever going to see that? Doubt it, but you really have to show, you have to show everybody you're in peril. Everybody involved, at least, that you're in peril if you're going to ask for concessions and you, like that. Yeah, and you have to show them in a way that engenders trust like maybe include uh some sense of what the real estate uh, stuff is that they're doing you know maybe show them what that means even if it means even if you say we don't think that's part we don't consider that part of the revenue at least show them how much it is you know if the owner's making billions of dollars off of off of real estate revenue around the stadiums that they got you know often given to them by local taxpayers then that's relevant. Even if they're not going to give the players a piece of the pie, it's relevant, you know? Yeah. So, you know, I, I, uh, uh, yeah, it's disappointing how that, how that played out. Um, I'm glad that there had, there is a document, there is some sort of plan. I, I did say that I trusted that baseball was thinking about it. And this plan suggests that yes, they had been thinking about it, but the optics of leading with the financial part was uh, a poor decision. Yeah, one that if they could do it again, maybe they would do it just a little bit differently. They dropped it pretty quickly. Yeah, they really did. As the COVID-19 outbreak continues across the U.S., more school districts are closing. And for the millions of kids who normally eat free or reduced price meals at school, this means no longer having breakfast or lunch. You can help make sure children get the meals they need by donating now at feedingamerica.org slash coronavirus. Brought to you by Feeding America and the Ad Council. All right, you know, we talked about the uh, the Aces piece that you wrote up at the top of the show, and I'm, I'm just kind of diving into that this morning, and I, I think it's really interesting. There's a few things that, that kind of jumped off the page to me. You talked to some players, you talked to people in the front office, and uh, Trevor Bauer, uh, you know, drew back the, uh, run it back to cards, right? Obviously, an ace is in the deck of cards, and you have an ace in the hole, as he pointed out in the story, and uh, that made me think, okay, well, yeah, there you know, there are four aces in a deck of 52 cards, so one in 13 cards is an ace, and that sort of implies a greater rarity than one per team or you know, even 20%, like a, a 30 even out of 150. Even the 15, then he sort of brought that up. Uh, yeah, yeah, and I, I think in my head, I guess that that is more in line with how I've always thought about an ace. Like even, even though some people do want to see one on every team in theory. I'd, I've never really quite viewed it that way. But as you talk to different people for this story, um, whose who's take did you find to be the most engaging? I don't know if this surprises anybody, but the scout. Hmm. 
the scout. Um, the, the scout and the assistant GM for different reasons. I'll start with the assistant GM just because um, it's less actionable for fantasy. And I just thought it was interesting. And maybe there is something that's actionable about fantasy. But he basically said, um, let me see if I can find him. Uh, here we go. Ah, there's no reason to exclude some guys. We think in archetypes, but and maybe that's like Strasburg or Cole or whoever. And sure, guys who throw 99 with hammer breaking balls, good control, and big balls, and the will to win. Oh, I didn't even realize he did big balls. I thought <laughs> I thought he was talking about a pitch. I just put that in there. All right. So anyway, so big balls in the will to win. But if that's your criteria, you might miss the fact you might you'll miss the fact that like Aaron Nola or Charlie Morton or Jack Flaherty may also be aces. The narrative surrounding archetypes of an ace isn't always the most helpful thing if you want to find an ace. And so guys like Scherzer, Sale, Degrom, Bieber, they were not themselves seen as aces until they just were. So it's not necessarily useful to talk about ingredients. It's maybe a little bit harmful because the next Verlander won't probably won't be Verlander. He may just be like Brandon Woodruff or Mike Soroka. So that is an interesting thing. It's just tough uh, to make actionable in fantasy because he's right. They come out of they 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 come out of the woodworks in different ways. And so I will go to the scout next, and he describes my sort of. Uh, heuristic for looking for an ace or looking for a really good pitcher. Uh, and so he's the one that I'm using. But um, it, it does get to the fact that, like, Brandon Woodruff is an ace, if he is an ace, it, because of a great fastball, you know? And maybe that's good enough. I don't know how if it's good enough to do it for five years, but maybe that's good enough for now. Maybe he's good enough ace just because he has an amazing fastball and good enough command of the secondaries to make them work, Okay. Uh, but Mike Soroka is totally different. Mike Soroka has only one pitch that was above average by stuff. Uh, everything's around 98 in terms of stuff plus from driveline. So, uh, you know, in terms of stuff, he has one, he has one, uh, he has only one like really above average pitch, but he has really good command and all of his pitches are, are pretty good. And so that's a totally different way of being an ace. And if you, focus too hard on Verlander as your model or whatever, um, you're going to look past too many people. So uh, I liked what he said. Uh, He also said that um, the talent pool doesn't go down in leaps and bounds. The talent pool basically goes down in little steps. So, you know, trying to cut it off at 7 or 15 or 30, you're always going to be like, well, uh, you know, what about... You know, 25 through 30, they don't look like they should be on the same list as 1 through 5, you know? Um, and so you make it smaller. And where where do you cut that line off? Is always There's always going to be an argument about who's in that line who's not. And at every point when I was writing, I was like, okay, so you say it's these 7. Well, what about this guy? You know? Oh, you say it's 15. Well, what about Luis Castillo? You know? <laughs> you say it's 30. Well, what about this guy? So, um, you know, I, I think that those things are really cool. But... The scout was the one who um, said really succinctly what I kind of look for. And this is what he said. Uh, when you're looking for an ace, he talked about dem- d- dominance, consistency, dur- durability. Those are, those are kind of uh, harder to find or, or you know, that that's the, like makes it five or seven. But when he's talking about like finding a new ace, he's talking about two well above average pitches, an above average third pitch, and above average command of all three. I think that's very, like, it's very well defined. 
Yeah. And maybe it's like, if we still have the AGM in our head, like maybe that's too well-defined, you know, like there's going to be aces that don't have those things, but it does get at how I look for good pitchers. I, I want multiple really good pitches. Maybe the third pitch is a show me pitch, but I don't want it to be terrible. And I want them to command more than one and at least two and ideally three pitches well because you have to be able to get strikes with more than one pitch otherwise you can be put in a box so i think then there's there's a natural question there's a a table in the piece it has a lot of names on it you expect to find there bueller cole degrom like of course they're there bieber's on that list as well verlander's on there you know he meets the criteria Mike Clevenger, at least in fantasy communities, is, is treated that way. Noah Syndergaard. I think the the outliers on the list or the surprises are really interesting. And there's a guy on here that you've talked a lot about before because you're looking for these types of factors already. You know, Sandy Alcantara. Like he hasn't put it all together yet. But if you have all of those ingredients, you know, what's the What's the last bit that you need? Is it the experience and, and sequencing? You know, experience to me would be like having the ability to sequence in a way that takes all of your pitches and leaves the hitter just guessing all the time, right? If you have uh, three average or better pitches and you can command at least two of them, you can create combinations and attack hitters in ways that they are just constantly struggling with you, right? And maybe a guy like Sandy Alcantara hasn't been able to do that yet, but with experience, with more reps, with time, with the right coaching, he can actually get to that level. Yeah, yeah. I mean, his uh, his sinker really stands out with a 128th stuff plus. Um, even if that number is inflated, uh, there was some talk with uh, the creator of the metric that um, you know sinkers might be inflated. It's a good pitch. Even if you take you know five ten percent off of it, whatever, uh, it's still a good pitch. The changeup uh, one twelve and the slider one oh nine. That's uh, three pitches that break in you know, or at least uh, velocity wise and break wise are very different from each other. Um, you know he hasn't been able to necessarily put it together. I think because he was focusing too much on the four seam that he couldn't command well, um, and. Um, I think a, a maybe being predictable and sort of just knowing when to throw, when to do. And then um, there's this just the idea of like having good game day strategy uh, that can be worth a lot. I think Greinke has plus plus game day strategy in terms of knowing what he wants to do with every hitter, uh, knowing what locations he wants to throw, which pitches and getting generally close to those locations. I think that's something you learn over time. So Alcantara is a guy that in previous iterations of my strategy, I might have missed because I would have focused too much on just raw strikeouts minus walks. But there are pitchers that improve their ability uh, when it comes to strikeouts minus walks. Um, and uh, I could see that coming from Alcantara just because he comes um, preloaded with all this stuff, you know. Um, and all it takes is just a little... I mean, just look at his strikeouts minus walks from the first 34 innings in, in 2018... Uh, he struck out eight per nine and walked six per nine. And I would have never have drafted that guy in the past uh, before I really started uh, going after stuff and stuff and, and, and command and stuff like that. Um, I, I would I would have said that guy is terrible. 
Yeah, you know, I, I would have been too quick to dismiss him with surface numbers. I, I that's, yeah. that's my pattern with him, right? Be like and too many even walks, minor too many numbers, too strikeouts. And even yeah, even minor numbers like his AAA uh, strikeout rate seven per nine, basically six point nine per nine. Like I would have been like, this guy's not going to strike out enough. But then you realize that with a sinker that good, he's not going to give up home runs like everybody else. He's just not, especially in that park. Like it's those two things are are, are not going to. So if you if you say, oh okay, so he's not going to have the same home run rate as everybody else, and then you start drilling in deeper, you go, wow, like these pitches that he's throwing are good. Like what's what? Why is he striking people out with this? Like his his whiff rates are pretty decent. Why is he have more strikeouts? Um, so I think uh, uh, I think there's a lot of uh, upside in him, uh, and maybe more even than another surprise uh, person on the list. That's Spencer Turnbull, um, just because uh, you know Spencer Turnbull's uh, velocity was up late in the season and in spring training too. Uh, but in terms of um, you know, his best pitch, his sinker is a 114 stuff plus. And his slider is 111, his curveball is 105, and he doesn't have necessarily a change, an above average change. But he has a show me change, and he has good command of all four pitches. Um, and he could be a lot better than he has been in the past. So um, uh, it, it was interesting to see Spencer Turnbull, Zach Gallen, uh, Sandy Alcantara uh, on the same list as these other guys, uh, Frankie Montas. Um, but those are exactly the type of players I love. Yeah, it's it is funny that this list turned up guys that you've already been kind of banging the drum for in mm-hmm. the last six months, if not longer, in most of these cases. I mean, I think we talked for about ten minutes about Turnbull on the episode around Labor Weekend. Like he was he was a key in your plan. Like he was a guy that came up in in all the the pre auction conversations we were having about your how you were going to put the pieces together. Uh, so it's really funny to see him, based on that criteria, make it and uh, pop up on the bottom of this board. But you know, also to be fair, like these, I label the 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 uh, table potential aces because I do think um, there is, and this might be a good segue to our our Giolito question if we want to. But there is a, something about replicating it uh, more than one year in a row, um, and the scout said. Uh, it takes more than one year of dominance to become a true ace. Reason being, you need to show dominance after the league has had an opportunity to adjust back to you. Yeah, exactly. That was that was a question from Mike, uh, and Lucas Giolito was the, the focal point, and he wrote, I completely understand that he reinvented himself. In 2019, Giolito and 2018, Giolito are, in fact, different people. However, two things still concern me heading into 2020. The first is just the mental hurdle of drafting a guy that was the worst pitcher in baseball in 2018 i hate early risk and this is just hard for me but okay let's get past that giolito's era by month for 2019 530 174 250 565 245 521 that first number is march and april combined i don't know if, i know these are arbitrary cutoffs but the point is that he didn't pitch like a 341 era pitcher for most of the season sure roto you get what you get but is it repeatable you know, he's asking basically if the if the good months, the 174 and the 245, like May and August, if those are 320 ERA instead, and he just brings back the five plus ERA in the other months, you know, what happens then? Um, I guess there's two two different questions here, though. So the first is that mental hurdle of drafting a guy who's completely turned it around. I mean, is is a full season with the types of changes that Giolito made, the velocity being up, the pitch mix being different. 
is that enough change where you can very confidently say, yeah, he is top 10 or yeah, he is top 15 now. Like it's okay to trust what we saw a year ago and to push aside what we saw in 2018 and prior to that. Uh, my general answer to the question, and if if this was a chat and I was giving a one-line answer, is that I agree uh, with his general take on Giolito and that I've been kind of the low man uh, compared to others. I put him in my you know top 30 and maybe uh, back-end top 25 type you know, in, in rankings in the past, but other people have been more aggressive on the basis of that one season. And for me, it's not so much the stuff... Um, I've talked about, uh, how, you know, with his change, uh, with his, with his, um, changes to his arsenal, he does the fastball and the change up or plus and the curveball uh, is average. So there's your two plus pitches and an average pitch. It's, it's the command side. Um, and I just, I think that he's going to have near a four walk rate next year because, um, uh, he doesn't command any of his pitches. Uh, he only commands one pitch at an average rate. Um, and he's lucky, uh, or lucky, I don't know, but he, it is good that, um, actually it's his changeup, uh, his, his slider is at 96, uh, and his fastball is at 95. Um, those aren't bad. It's not, it's not like he's going to be a reliever. Uh, there aren't, they aren't sort of Dylan cease level bad or, 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 um, Lucchese level bad. Uh, but they also aren't necessarily uh, what you see from other um, aces. And when we saw from the scout, he said three pitches you can command above average. Giolito has one that he commands at an average level. So I just I expect his walk rate to rise. Um, that's my sort of general reaction to what he's saying. But I did I, I thought it was interesting. I, I wanted to just look at some pitchers and look at their monthly splits. Um, Brandon Woodruff I like a lot. Uh, March a 5.17 ERA, May 1 ERA, June 4.78, July 3.45. Um, that's weird. Uh, Max Freed, who I like a little, maybe not as much as other people, but uh, I like him a fair amount. Uh, 2.30 ERA in March, 4.11 in May, 5.68 in June, 5.28 in July, 3.51 in August, 3.86 in September. Um, and then, how about? Uh, Mike Soroka, uh, who most of us love a lot, um, 162 in March, 0.8 in May, 371 in June, 307 in July, 267 in August, 4 in September. Um, So there's a fair amount of uh, month-to-month variance that comes with even the very best pitchers. Um, And I think the, the durable capital A aces that are in the top five to seven um, those are the kind of guys who mitigate the bad months um, and really dominate in the other months. Um, and maybe Soroka's uh, line is a little bit like that, where he has a 0.8 URA one month and his worst month was a four. Maybe that's an ace-like um, progression. But um, when you you know look at his underlying stuff, um, he's going to have to be more Grenke than Verlander going forward. Um, and if that's the case, um, I might want another pitch from him. I mean, Granke has like six pitches. Yeah, that I mean, that's that's the key, right? It's either got to be more velo, which I don't think is out of the question for Soroka, given how young he is yeah. and his frame. That's a good point. 
Like yeah, he, he's that's the other thing he could do if he doesn't add a pitch he can effectively use to get more strikeouts. He could just start throwing harder. But there just aren't there isn't like there isn't a, a large cadre of other aces that throw ninety two, uh, have three pitches, and none of them is like a top ten pitch for its pitch type. No, I mean, a lot of times, for someone like Grinky, I mean, obviously he threw harder when he was younger, most pitchers do, the uh-huh. evolution of no longer being an ace is not having a way or a game plan or good enough secondaries to work without that velocity. And that's what makes mm-hmm. Grinky so amazing, is that he's been able to continue turning in these seasons well into his 30s you know, without velocity, like a, a lot of guys fall apart in their early thirties when the velocity starts to go, just because the rest of the arsenal doesn't play quite the same way. Yeah, but command of three pitches. Uh, you know, look at look at Soroka's uh, home run projections, and they vary from point nine to one point two. Uh, that's pretty. They're mostly uh, positive uh, that he's. You know, that they mostly agree that he's going to suppress home runs. Um, and that's going to go a long way to improving his ERA. But also, um, he didn't show up on the top 30 projected aces um, because mostly his projected ERAs are in the high threes. Right. And I think a lot of projections don't like him because he doesn't strike a ton of guys out. Yeah. But like put him up against Sandy Alcantara, and it's like easier to see how Alcantara gets to more strikeouts with his stuff than it is to necessarily see Soroka with his existing stuff uh, getting to more strikeouts. What kind of odds, though, would you need to take Alcantara over Soroka for oh. ERA and whip? I mean, it, it'd be yeah. it'd be big, right? I mean, we're, we're, it's still a fantasy podcast. We're still talking about <laughs> at cost. Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I just, it's, it's just kind of funny how, how divergent those two guys uh, really are. Um, yeah, totally different reasons to like both of them. You, you could like both of them, but you're you're not really getting there on the same track. I mean, I have three or four shares of Soroka. I have three or four shares of Alcantara and one share of Soroka, uh, and that has nothing to do with how I think of um, their talent level, you know, right away. But uh, their talent level with respect to their cost, right? E- easier to load like up that. on Alcantara, even if you even if you really liked Soroka at the price, it's still harder to get him comparatively speaking because yeah exactly yeah. other people are more interested in him that's why his price is higher but i think i think generally he's uh, this uh, uh this question is good because it's it, it is hard for me to uh push giolito given his uh group of giolito and soroka are kind of like are actually kind of similar in that you know i see enough that makes me worried to like not go all in at the prices that they're at, you know? Um, Cause so I have Soroka at 27 and G- oh, wow. I have Giolito at 26 and Soroka at 27. <laughs> right next to each other. Uh, and Montas at 24. So, you know, the, I don't know. I don't, I don't end up uh, with a lot of Giolito and Soroka because, um, that you know i think more more people have them at sort of 15 16 yeah, you are quite a bit lower than most i had Gilito at 12 a few almost months ago now i think with clevenger being healthy that flips clevenger ahead of him 
The more I look at Luis Castillo, the more I like him. So I think Castillo over Giolito is something I'd be doing. Brandon Woodruff over Giolito. Snap call in the moment. I think I would just wait because I can get Woodruff a little later and and just take Woodruff later, even if I had Giolito ranked higher. So he's just inside the top 15 for me. But definitely understand where concern comes from with him. And uh, yeah, Mike, if you can't get past the the differences in, in his performance in 18 and 19 and you see some of the things that, that Eno is talking about as concerns, I would, would stay away at the price because he's he's got to do very well to return value at the uh, 2020 ADP. Top performers in business and sports often attribute their success to their morning routine, whether it's waking up early, setting their goals for the day, exercise, or meditation. But not everyone has the time to do it all. With Hydrant, you can jumpstart your mornings. Hydrant creates flavored electrolyte packets you mix directly into your water to make hydrating your body easy and delicious. Each rapid hydration mix has the four essential electrolytes your body needs. Sodium, potassium, magnesium, and zinc help you hydrate quickly and stay hydrated all day. And Hydrant is backed by research. The formula was developed by scientists to provide perfectly balanced, efficient hydration. There's no synthetic colors or artificial sweeteners. The formula is vegan, and you can choose between three different flavors or a variety pack. Hydrant starts at just a buck a packet for a 30-day supply. You can save even more with a monthly subscription. And for 25% off your first order, go to drinkhydrant.com, enter the promo code RATES at checkout. That's drinkhydrant.com, enter promo code RATES for 25% off your first order. Drinkhydrant.com, and enter promo code RATES. All right, you know, I've been talking about these retro drafts off and on for probably about a month or so now, and I'm starting to learn a few different things from them. We've done three different leagues. We've done a 1982 draft, a 1990 draft, and a 1999 draft. Um, It'd be wrong if I didn't shout out first Ron Chandler for coming up with the idea, and second, Todd Zola has built an engine through Google Sheets that actually makes drafting and tracking the results in real time very easy to do from a user perspective it was very difficult for todd to do just to build it and program it uh, but that's made the experience a lot more fun what are you testing then do you guys all have the the google thing and you can all see how your stats are doing in real time as it's going what 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 are you testing then with the with the draft yeah that's what's that, that's what's happening so he's, he's built a sheet that you, you type your pick into a window into the actual cell and it pulls that player's stats it puts them onto your roster on a different page so you can look at your roster tab and it also pulls all the stats into the standings table so you have dynamically updated stats for every single pick so you're are you testing because we everyone can see how they're standing how the standings are doing how teams are doing what teams are doing like you can see in real time if somebody's punting saves basically um, so in terms of strategies, everyone's strategies are ba- laid bare. There's no projection of the players as a skill. Um, so what what I think what you're testing is either the player's knowledge of the pool. Yeah, it's it's a little bit of a, a pool knowledge test, and it, what's what's forcing me to do. I've never had to sit down and write formulas that actually generate values looking at past seasons and because these seasons are so different 82 versus 90 versus 99 very different environments across the board it creates a different problem each time and i, I would compare it to it's sort of like driving from you know the city you live in to the next decent sized city right everyone's going to take the highway for most of the trip and then when there's a traffic jam at the end let's say you're going to a baseball game 
Whoever actually gets to the parking lot first is probably the person who's best at picking the right exit a few exits before and then taking all the side streets. And in this case, it's recognizing what the rest of the room wants to do in accumulating all the stats and building the roster and counterpunching to that. So I think Peter Kreutzer and Doug Dennis have been in all three of these with me, I'm pretty sure. They have been uh, punting starting pitching and trying to just dominate ratios and win saves. And there's some pretty interesting things you can do when you have you know seasons that are already completed. You can find a surprising number of wins from relievers when you know the outcome ahead of time. Uh, so you know they, they build their team that way. And coming up with a strategy that either sort of blocks them while also effectively allowing me to maximize what I'm doing in the other categories, like that's sort of the challenge is, is reacting to what everyone else is trying to do or is likely to do with a better strategy that works because of how everybody else played it. It's kind of like we talked about with Project GOAT. At a certain point, maybe there's diminishing returns with punting saves. Eventually, it, it becomes a good idea to not punt that's saves. That's why the icorn strategy became so, so valuable. Right, and, and when you don't know exactly what everyone's going to do, even though the results are being run like in the window next to you, you have to choose your subtle adjustments carefully along the way. So at like the very beginning, everyone's kind of doing the same things. They're looking at the same 30 or 40 players in the first few rounds, and you know you plot your general direction by choosing which stats you want to build around or which positions maybe. And in the 1990 draft last night, I think Fred Zinke crushed in part because of Piazza. But he also did not take a full punt strategy on any stat. No, he didn't punt anything, and he, he also drafted, it was Pedro Estacio, I think, was the player. And it was strange because Estacio, when I ran my values, which I, I'm pretty sure I did not do perfectly, but I did well enough. I, I had like half of a map to, to get to where I needed to go. Uh, Estacio had a really good strikeout season that year. He had 210 strikeouts, which in 1999 was actually a lot. But he had a 504 ERA. He had a 504 ERA. He pitched in Colorado, and he had a, a 143 WHIP. And wow, a, that player was picked on a winning team. But a 143 WHIP among starters in 1999 was pretty much like league average. Like if you give every because team because it was and the half, middle of the crazy steroid years. Yeah, and and a 504 ERA like it it jars us because we would never choose that, you know. It doesn't hurt you as much as you think it does if you've built in the right cushion around that. And when you when you know what you're buying before you get him, you have that luxury and you get 17 wins. I mean, like the the value of, of wins in that situation is more than you realize. Like we're so trained to not chase wins looking forward for good reason that it it's still kind of is counterintuitive even when you have the results it's 17 it's it's counterintuitive to to choose players because of wins even though it's a huge thing that gives you a lift like it's very important yeah i noticed he also had uh one reliever i feel like yeah i'm trying to pull up the results again right now he i thought he had 17 saves but um maybe he got john franco but yeah i mean punting saves would probably be the most logical category i punted average last night and it, the thing that i screwed but it up, hurt you in runs and rbi it, it ended up hurting me in runs and rbi or 
something was off with how I was tracking players. Like I had a big spreadsheet with my projections in it, had the values, ran the formula, sorted by value. I think I, I think what I should have done is decided to punt average before the third round and built the values around that to then mm. boost up the value of runs and RBIs. And I think what was also happening is normally, like in the environment we play in now, a guy that hits 25 or 30 homers, drives in 100, scores 100, that's awesome. But look back at, at 1999 for a second. Oh, man. A whole bunch of guys that did that. And I think I was just kind of tricking myself because of the way I was putting it together. Manny Ramirez had 165 RBI. That year. And I think I, I, think, I think I screwed up. I think I, I had a choice of, of Manny versus Sammy Sosa, and I took Sosa. And I think I actually would have been better off you, taking Manny because of where I fell short in the end. Like I won home so runs many. by enough. Like I, I, yeah. It's the same thing as when I drafted Ricky Henderson in 82. Just, I just wasted production because I, I got too much. Of, of a category again and so basically what you're saying in a way that could be actionable to other people who are not doing historical drafts or going forward is that if you are going to do a punt strategy and i think some of what we're learning this offseason with goat and these historical ones is that punting is a viable strategy even in in roto yes um if you are going to punt and and i'm sorry if someone's rolling their eyes and they already they always knew that but i've always tried to build balanced teams um and um, the, the, the thing that the, the sort of ancillary part is if you are going to punt, you know, punt from your first pick. Well, I, I think, or, or have, have consider that yeah from your first pick. I would say make punting more of a, like a plan A plan B. We t- you, you've brought it up as decision trees before. Right. Go into it knowing like, okay. If this happens and I can get like let's say you're gonna punt saves. Like that that's what you think you're gonna do. If this series of closers are available at these prices, I will go ahead and, and pay these prices for these guys only. If that doesn't happen, I'm punting. And in the I'm punting plan, here's what I'm doing to counteract that. It does make your margin for error smaller, but it also gives you a chance to max out in the other categories. Instead of maybe being third or fourth in a bunch of categories, you've got more chances to win a greater number of categories. So it, it is viable. I just think you you got to be smart about it. And I know that's not actionable in and of itself, but you, you can't just go into these drafts, even knowing the stats in front of you, and wing it. You have to be very calculated in your maneuvering. And I think Fred was really good at that this was his first one too and he came out and his uh the thing that made it really kind of stand out the last player he needed was an outfielder everybody else was either filling their ninth pitcher spot or a lot of people were getting their second catcher and like he drafted i think ryan klesko with his last pick who was still pretty good and you know i'm out here drafting terry steinbach uh pretty big difference in terms of the impact that the counting stats make in those two players uh, but he he'd, he'd figured some things out ahead of Ryan time. Ryan Klesko, for those who don't know, 1999, hit 297 with 21 homers and 80 RBI. And Steinbach <laughs> hit... Be prepared, prepared to be underwhelmed. Yeah. Hit... Oh, it was the last year of his career. He hit 284 with four homers. Right. So he was, like, for me, as a team that had an excess of home runs and knew it, that didn't matter. The batting average thing didn't matter but either. But 35 runs and 42 RBI mattered. Right. That was the best 
combination of runs and RBIs left on the board when my last pick came up. But if I could, if I could do it again, I mean, there's a few things that can help. In, in the 99 pool, if you look back at it, that was a great Pedro year. It was a great Randy Johnson year. It was an awesome Pudge year. Any of those guys as building blocks, that steers your early strategy a little bit. Not getting those guys, you got to look at it a bit differently. I would have probably jumped Mike Piazza up as my first rounder because there were more players like Sosa, even though Sosa was awesome in home runs that year. There were more players who could help make up that ground available late. You know, Klesko types, right? Relatively speaking, you could sort of make up that difference and gain an advantage by having a legitimate early round catcher like those guys were awesome that's <laughs> mm-hmm. pudge was the fourth overall pick for good reason and eric carroll did really well he was owned team. on like he was owned on like a, a you know 70 percent of goat rosters Ivan rodriguez yeah in 1999 so i think that would have been a really valuable i mean just look at him versus terry steinbach 332 average 116 runs 113 rbi 35 homers 25 steals <laughs> that's it's nuts. Yeah, and those numbers, if you took away the catcher designation, would still be comparable. Like, like Pudge was probably a little better than even Albert Bell, who was a pretty early pick in this draft, right? And you get the catcher bump, too, and you look at the gap. Comparable to, like, Bobby Abreu hit 20 homers, 27 sto- uh, stolen bases, hit uh, 335. Yeah, so to get that from your catcher when the drop-off, when you see it play out, is, is as extreme as it was, you know, that was something that I, I did not account for well enough. I, I was a little bit too agnostic early on, and it, it came back to uh, to bite me yesterday. Yeah, I think these I think uh, these have been valuable exercises. I, I'm I'm uh, I'm surprised. How many of these have you done now? I've done three. And you you think you've learned something each time? Yeah, it, sometimes it's just more. Something more do. random like hey uh, I, this guy was really good back then <laughs> like just something <laughs> on, on the cursory. not very useful for going forward <laughs> no but I, I mean I went into I, I've kind of gone into each one with a little bit more prep work and I'm, I'm trying to hone in on the the optimal way to go about it and I think I'm getting close after three maybe if I would have put more time into it I could have got it right from the jump but I'm I'm trying to also enjoy it and, and use it as like a, a relaxation exercise as well but the the competitive juices start to flow a little bit if you haven't. Uh, if you've been in three and you haven't won one yet, or even been like near the top at the end, uh, it gets you a little more fired up to. So you've got you've got a, a Jeff Erickson winner, a Fred Zinke winner, yeah, and, and? Uh, Brian Feldman, I think, won nice. the first one. I think I have to look back, but uh, yeah, so they've they've been fun. And again, uh, Todd's actually I think selling. I think you can buy the sheets through Masters Ball if I'm not mistaken. I should know for sure, but uh, it's pretty cool to have that available. And I know some people that wrote into us actually were building a classic draft tool of their own. So I mean, it's it's more fun than I thought it would be, and I am starting to learn some skills and things that will I think be helpful for future drafts. Yeah, what was that thing called? The uh, the the one we got from our listeners. Yeah. It was the live draft tool. It was from Seth and David and email didn't put the name in. Yeah, that's those, those. Seth Seth Webster. Yeah. Project Goat Live Draft. Google Sheets Draft Tool. It's intense. It was really well He's done. He's at 
at Rotodash. If you uh, want to check it out yourself, yeah, if you want to check that out, if you got questions for Todd about his, he's at Todd Zola. Um, before we sign off, you know, how about beer of the week? Should we do a beer of the week? Ooh, beer of the week. I I will um, I will just go with my mother's favorite beer out of the package I sent her. And that was from Pure Project, um, called Super Beta, I believe. Let me see here. She just wrote me back. Super Beta Murky IPA from Pure Project. That uh, that was a favorite. And then I also had a box of Portland beers, um, or, or Oregon Northwestern beers, and I wanted to highlight one that was not necessarily i didn't pick it as my favorite going in uh but i really liked it and it was cool party from boss rambler beer club i've never heard of boss rambler beer club but it was a west coast ipa um that was had a little bit of crispness to it and it kind of made me rediscover you know we've gotten so far into the hazy thing this one made me rediscover a love for West Coast IPAs. Sometimes I go back to West Coast IPAs and they seem very sweet. Yeah, they're like almost a little sticky. Yeah, and that and that was the, that was the idea. The, the descriptors were sweet and dank. Uh, those were kind of the things we talked about when we talked about West Coast IPAs. But this one was really cool because it was yeah it had a little bit of sweetness and a little bit of that dankness, but it also cleaned it up at the end with a little bit of crispness. And I I think it was called. Uh, something like a new West Coast IPA. Um, and uh, I kind of like that idea that there might be uh, a revisit of the West Coast IPA when we come out of, you know, because at some point we're going to get tired of hazy. I sometimes look in my fridge and I'm like, okay, what's not hazy in here? <laughs> yeah. Um, and so I like the idea that maybe we'll, we'll kind of revisit West Coast IPAs and make them a little bit more crisp. Yeah, I, I think that'll be an interesting uh, development if we, if we do get back to the more traditional IPA, since you're right, hazies have taken over for a few years now. The uh, the beer I had, also an Oregon beer, I think I mentioned it for a previous beer of the week, but I finally got a chance to drink it, was uh, Matryoshka from Fort George. It is a barrel-aged uh, Russian Imperial Stout, and it's a big hitter. It's like 12% alcohol, but it was good. You know, Classic right in the molars. Uh, really nice, like bourbon chocolate flavor. I, I I thought it was it was pretty comparable to uh, old Rasputin with some extra juice from the barrel. I guess would probably be the the beer that it reminded me of. Uh, it's another one from our friend Danny Kugler. Who sent us, uh, I think he sent both of us some stuff or brought us stuff at First Pitch Arizona. So thanks to Danny for sharing that. But every single did beer, it have a did it have a um it says here that a small portion of these barrels receives them added love. Vanilla beans, coconut, um, and of those barrels, only a few will be blessed a second time with berries or coffee beans or exotic spice. Did you have any uh, of the special smaller batch ones? I did. There was there was uh, raspberry in this one. That was the other thing that, that came through. That's what made it stand out to me. And it, it wasn't oh. like tart raspberry. It was just like that extra extra little bit at the end and it was it was nice like oh i bet you that was good yeah 12.8 percent. it's there from astoria with love 
uh, hearty Russian Imperial Stout seasonal, and then they put that in back into barrels with some extra just Ooh, I bet you that was great. Yeah, it was really good. So thanks to Danny for for sharing all of those beers. I, I've had a few already. I've got a couple still left. Uh, the Block 15 stuff he sent me was really good too. There was uh, an IPA I think with spruce tips that I had. That was like right when the box got here. I had that one right away. Mm. Um, spruce tips are. We have to do some trading with some East Coast people, don't we? Yeah, yeah. I, I'm going to need to do some trading in the near future. We need to do some trading with some East Coast people to get. Uh, I'm on a beer chat. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to hit some of them up for um, for some trading because we don't want to have we don't you know a lot of our beers are, are West Coast and Midwest. Huh? They are. Are you yeah. Midwest? What are you? Oh, yeah, Midwest. Okay. What what, what region were you going to put me in? Middle? Middle, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I've never really heard anyone describe it as middle. Though, middle, so I... yeah. What does is, what is Brick say? Brick's doing the weather in Anchorman, and he's like, and compare that to 45 degrees in the Middle East. I'm, I think he points at, like, <laughs> Kentucky or something. He points to, like, eastern part of the Midwest, maybe, is, is where he goes. <laughs> yeah, the Middle East. <laughs> like, classic classic brick tablin but uh i got a few beers uh from delta beer lab also that i picked up last week so i'm gonna get through some of those they have a honey red ale uh, mango ghost and kind of like you were saying with with the the great hazies i just want to mix it up a little bit and i think i saw a thread going on because you would you put a beer out there that was barrel aged with a ton of adjuncts and it sounded amazing and it was only like 5.5 or 6 percent abv and I do want lower ABV stuff because I'm at the point now. I'm trying to run a little bit, trying to get outside and walk and, and exercise. The weather's getting better. And trying not to just go to sleep after a beer. Yeah, I'm trying not to just like drop in a 500 calorie beer every time I drink a beer. <laughs> yeah. That you know, that kind of uh, makes. The, I'll say it was cool. good, but there was there was trade offs. I mean, it had the it had the chocolate and the coffee and the uh, you know a, a, a fair amount of taste that you wanted but the trade-off was without the alcohol and without what it, it said it was barrel fermented not barrel aged and so you didn't get the oak thickness that you get from leaving it in there for a full year um or six months even and it didn't have um that sort of just it, thickness was a thing so it ended up tasting a little bit more like a porter you know where you you've got some you can have some flavors you have a little bit of bitterness um, but you don't have that kind of sweet thickness that you get from like a barrel aged uh, barrel aged stout, you know. Mm-hmm. So it 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 drank a little bit more like a porter uh, with adjuncts in it. Um, I, I didn't hate it, but um, it's sort of like uh, what are those sweeteners like aspartame? It's sort of like drinking something with aspartame. Where you're like, well, that gave me the impression of sweetness, but not one that I enjoyed. I think the hardest thing about a Makes beer... Makes you want the real thing. <laughs> yeah, the hardest thing about a beer like that would be the thinness, right? I think you yeah. better note in the tweet that it, it just didn't have the same mouthfeel, the chewy, the hits-you-in-the-molars yeah. feeling that you've you've described before. And that is part of what makes those really good, thick stouts play up a little bit, too, is that yeah. the texture, it, it fits with the flavor. Like, if you get if you were to get almost that much flavor... With a beer that's thin, it would mess with your head a little bit. Yeah. Yes, I agree. Yeah. Yeah. So 
not one of my favorite beers, but uh, an interesting attempt. Yeah, that was um, that was Dissolver Eat the Rich. Hmm. Well, hmm. interesting stuff for sure. And uh, as always, if you got uh, beer recommendations for us, questions, whatever it might be, you can reach us. Rates and Barrels at theathletic.com. Uh, be sure to spell out the word and. You can find Eno on Twitter at Eno Saris. You can find me at Derek Van Riper. If you're enjoying the show, please take a moment to leave us a nice rating and review. We really appreciate everybody who's done that. And if you're looking for a subscription to The Athletic, you can get a free 90-day trial at theathletic.com slash free 90 days. If you could support the site with a subscription, get 40% off at theathletic.com slash rates and barrels. And thank you to all of you for doing that. We really appreciate your support, especially in these times. That's going to wrap things up for this episode of Rates and Barrels. We are back with you on Tuesday. Thanks for listening.